0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Sunday, October the 16th, 2022. Uh, The beginning of the week, we did a conversation with two German journalists, Adrian Gaiji's and Stefan asked about a man they call the most powerful man in the world, Xi Jinping, the head of the Chinese Communist Party. They have a new book out, uh, which of course is entitled "That: The Most Powerful Man in the World." And uh, he's been manifesting that power over the weekend at the, I think it's the 20th Chinese Communist Party Congress made some speeches warning of dangerous storms facing China. And three, in particular, he focuses on uh, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and zero COVID. But maybe she hasn't been really telling the truth, because if China is indeed dealing with what he calls a dangerous storm, uh, he left off the chips, computer chips, which may be the core issue now. Facing not just China, but China's relationship with the United States and with the world economy. That, at least I'm guessing, is the view of my guest on the show today, Chris Miller. He has a new book out. Chris is uh, an old friend of the show, but he has a, a really interesting and important new book out called Chip War, The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology. And Chris is joining us um, from Massachusetts today. Chris, welcome. Congratulations on the new book. A couple of questions to begin, kick you off with. Firstly, um, should she have mentioned chips alongside Taiwan and COVID? Uh, And secondly, for you as a historian of technology, uh, do you believe in the idea of strong men or at least the strongest man in the world? Or should we be talking about the strongest technology in the world, and in that sense, chips. Are men like Xi Jinping really just prisoners of
1: big tech-like products like uh, chips? Well, I think Xi Jinping feels like a, a prisoner of the situation he and his country find themselves in. For the past decade, Chinese leaders, including President Xi personally, have identified chips as a core weakness for China. And their rationale is simple. First off, chips are at the core of all technologies that we rely on, data centers, the internet, computers, smartphones, but also dishwashers and microwaves. All of them depend on chips. And second, China imports most of the chips that it needs. It uh, spends roughly as much money importing chips as it does importing oil. And most of the chips that it buys from abroad are bought from countries with which it has a pretty uh, tumultuous geopolitical set of relationships, either Taiwan South Korea or the United States. So China is trapped in this situation of dependency uh, on foreign ships, but it's desperately trying to get out by uh, spending uh, tens and hundreds of billions of dollars trying to build up its own chip industry that can, can compete with the world leaders.
0: So everyone always talks about this thing or that thing being the new oil. Are chips the new oil, Chris? Are these the things that are gonna determine power and wealth in the 21st century?
1: Well, they already are determining power and wealth, and we've seen the US try to use its influence and control over the production of chips to cut off Russia and China from accessing the most advanced semiconductors. But actually, what's interesting about chips is that their production is even more concentrated than oil. We think of Saudi Arabia as playing a big role in the world because it uh, produces around 10 or 15% of the world's oil, but Taiwan produces around a third of the world's processor chips and 90% of the world's most advanced processor chips. Uh, Korea produces over 40% of the world's memory chips. And there's one company in the Netherlands called ASML, which produces 100% of the advanced lithography machines, without which it's impossible to make chips. So there's a bunch of choke points in the chip industry and the production process that are even more concentrated than Saudi Arabia's chokehold on oil markets. And if you think of how difficult it would be to live without semiconductors and all of our manufactured devices basically require them uh it's i think uh it's a product that we've been focusing insufficiently on we've been talking too much about oil too much about saudi arabia and russia's influence and ignored the fact that there are these immense vulnerabilities in the production of chips
0: well i uh, chris uh, joe biden is a big fan of history and history books i wonder if he's been reading your book did you give him an early copy uh in terms of his chips and science act of 2022 it seems as if uh his and i'm using my own language i'm not sure if he used this word the journalists have his war his economic war against china is focusing on hobbling china's uh, chip industry lots of legislation uh, he some journalists are talking about an all-in on taking on china particularly on the chip front has uh has Uncle Joe been reading your book, uh, Chris?
1: Well, I, I, I don't know about that. Um, but what I will say is that the U.S. government in general uh, believes that ships are a crucial and perhaps the crucial advantage the U.S. still has vis-a-vis China in a military sense. And if you look at the military balance between the U.S. and China over the past couple decades, it's been shifting dramatically in China's favor in terms of the number and the quality of ships and planes and submarines that the two sides can produce. And China's shipbuilding plans and its uh, expansion of its air force are uh, over the next couple of uh, years into the next decade going to dramatically outstrip what the US can do. And so the US strategy to keep up with China militarily is not to match them tank for tank or plane for plane, but to outcompute them, to have more computing power uh, in systems that are therefore smarter and more accurate uh, and more capable of defeating their adversary. And the way to do that is to have better chips, because ultimately uh, chips are what provide all the computing power that we rely on. We only are able to compute because semiconductor companies can pack billions and billions of tiny transistors uh, into each chip. And right now, the U.S., along with allies like Taiwan and South Korea, control the keys to producing the most advanced chips, and China's far behind.
0: Isn't it though a bit of a rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic in terms of whether or not China has access to the most sophisticated chips. Firstly, one must assume that given their brainpower and the power of their universities, that eventually they'll be able to develop their own chips. And secondly, it doesn't really make any difference in terms of global nuclear war, doesn't make any difference in terms of the real, certainly the economic or the cultural balance of power in the world, does it?
1: Well, in the military perspective, I think it it really does. And if you ask yourself, why is it that a small number of missile systems that the U.S. has given Ukraine in this war have turned the tide of the war, whereas Russia's vast arsenal has uh, failed to defeat the far smaller Ukrainian army? It's largely because uh, U.S. systems are better than Russian systems. They're easier to use. They're more accurate. They're more resistant to uh, jamming. Um, Their guidance systems are Uh, more advanced. And that's largely because of semiconductors. If you think about what makes it possible for any military system to compute, to communicate, to sense, to remember, all that is a question of chips. And for the past half century, there's been no more important uh, uh, transformative force in military power than chips. Because if you think of what's made it possible to guide a missile to a a single target on the battlefield, it's miniaturizing computing power in the nose of that missile, uh, giving it its targeting information and letting it think its way to the target. So I think it's pretty clear, actually, that uh, computing power will be uh, central to the battlefields of the future. And if you think of not just uh, hitting targets with missiles, but uh, retaining control of your communications and sensor systems, all that's going to require and already does require really sophisticated electronic warfare systems that are, again, intensely dependent on the quality and quantity of semiconductors inside them. So both China and the U.S. realize that chips are at the future of war. The question is, can China catch up? And here the answer is that their track record is not great. They've been trying to catch up for some time. The Made in China 2025 plan, which many people have talked about, is going to fail to hit its semiconductor targets by 2025. And the reality is that the chip industry is the world's most complex. The most advanced facilities to create chips are the most expensive factories in human history. The machine tools you need to make chips are the most expensive machine tools in human history. Just to give you one example, one type of machine tool uh, that's used in chip making can easily have several hundred thousand component parts inside of it such as the flattest mirrors ever used in human history or some of the most powerful lasers ever used for commercial purposes. So this is really sophisticated stuff. Uh, and China's track record of catching up is not great. Will they catch up at some point? Maybe. Um, but at that point, uh, the chip industry will move ahead because the final thing that makes semiconductors unique is that for the past half century, they've improved at an exponential growth rate, doubling their computer po- computing power every two years. And so even if China does catch up to where the rest of the world is today, that'll be far behind by the time it catches up. And so this exponential growth, so long as it continues, uh, will make it extraordinarily difficult for any other country to reach uh, what the US, South Korea and Taiwan can do today.
0: I want to come back to what you call exponential growth, which in Silicon Valley is called Moore's Law. But I wonder, Chris, is there a little bit of techno-determinism in your argument. You've been on the show a couple of times before. You were on back in July asking whether the Russians could even be winning the war in Ukraine. You were on in March talking about the politics of Putinomics in the Ukrainian war. I'm not a a military expert, Chris, but I mean the reason that Putin's losing in Ukraine is not because of the sophistication of Ukrainian weapons. It's because of the unjustness of the invasion. Um, The fact that the Russian military is not engaged. That uh, doesn't seem to really. Most Russians don't seem to really care that much about the war, and because of the existential fight on the part of Ukrainians, that's got nothing to do with technology, does it? Well, I think
1: the the course of the war has many factors impacting it. So I wouldn't say technology is the only factor. And you're right that uh, the Ukrainians almost complete unanimity around repulsing the Russian invasion coupled with Russia's internal divisions are crucially important in shaping how the wars played out. But if you ask yourself, why is it that on the first day or two of the war, the Russians were unable to knock out the Ukrainian air force? Or why is it that on the first couple days of the war, Russians were unable to knock out Ukrainian cell phone networks or power plants? And I think the answer to that has to do in large part with the fact that the Russians had Less computing power working on their intelligence and surveillance, coupled with less computing power in their missiles, uh, which were failing to hit targets. Uh, and the combination is that the first couple days of Russia's war against Ukraine was vastly less effective than, for example, the first couple days of the U.S. war in Iraq in 2003 in terms of simply of taking out enemy targets. Uh, And that is not solely a question of of performance or morale. That's partially a question of technology. The Russians just have worse technology and increasingly the Ukrainians have better technology.
0: You talk about that opening of the war uh, in 1991. And that's one of the key metaphors in your book in terms of the power of chips. But of course, ultimately, American policy in Iraq has also been catastrophic with or without the sophisticated chips. Again, maybe I'm repeating myself a little bit here, but isn't politics more important than computer chips? Ultimately, it doesn't matter if you have the most sophisticated computer chips in the world, but if you stumble into a country that you have no understanding of and make a
1: complete mess of things, chips aren't going to help you very much. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think that's that's certainly true. I, I I guess I would I would push back against the the argument that you can put technology and politics in separate buckets because what we've seen in the past is that politics impacts how technology develops and then technology structures how politics uh, can form. And you know, if you look at the history of the chip, what you find is a, a piece of technology deeply uh, impacted by political trends. For example, the first couple of, um, uh, of years of the event after the invention of the computer chip, in the late 50s, nearly 60s, the sole customer for chips was the U.S. Defense Department and NASA which were interested in ships because they wanted to shoot rockets into space and needed smaller guidance computers. So there's a deep interrelationship between US security and foreign policy goals and the chip industry from the earliest days. And even today, the Defense Department and DARPA, the Defense Advanced Projects Research Agency, is a key funder of long-term research into chips. So there's, uh, there's obviously a political angle in terms of shaping how the technology develops. And I don't think anyone would uh, would disagree that, uh, that technology can be used in different ways, uh, more successfully or less successfully uh, over time. But uh, it's certainly the case that some countries have access to technology and others don't. And, and chips are the best example of this in the world because the production of them is monopolized by just a couple of countries and no one else has been able to break into them. And that's something that does structure politics. If you're Putin or if you're Xi Jinping, you simply can't get access to the most advanced technology
0: uh the, the book has been embraced it's it's a major new work um and virginia heffernan who's been on the show she's the author of magic and lost a wonderful writer rather sort of engaging irreverent writer who loves the book uh but quoting her she said chip war is suffused with an unapologetic manliness uh legitimate ingenuity greed to beat the band and devious power play plays on a world stage is there a bit of a a, a, a boy's reading of history here, uh, 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 Chris. I mean, you're obviously a boy, so am I. Um, are, are men still relying on tech to make sense of the world? We had a, a show with Richard Reeves, the Brooking industry guy recently, has a new book out on boys and men talking about the crisis of manliness in the world today. Is there something old-fashioned about this book, Chip wore at least the way in which it interprets history? I mean, you're a conservative, so that nests, isn't necessary and maybe I'm wrong to call you a conservative but you're certainly not on the left um, maybe that you might take that as a compliment
1: well I, I think it it's just an accurate statement of of how the chip developed it, it's the the chip industry has always been the most conservative part of America's tech sector in general um, and it's always been the the it always has generally had the least, women involved in leadership roles. There's a lot of women who have been involved in manufacturing. Yeah, no no women
0: in the treacherous eight, not even, yeah, that's right. For example, not even right. a potential woman there.
1: That's, that's right. And, and so I, I think rather than saying this is a good thing or a bad thing, that's just the reality of, of the industry. And I think it's important to understand the way that the chip industry does have a diff- different politics and a different social cast than what we think of when we think of the tech industry or Silicon Valley in general you know, today, we often think of Silicon Valley as being sort of countercultural in some ways or willing to question the status quo. And that's true in, in in some sense. But the industry that gave Silicon Valley its name was not revolutionary in the sense of wanting to dramatically change culture or society. They wanted to dramatically change technology, but it, it, it wasn't a, a socially revolutionary industry. And that persists, I think, to this day. Um, we often focus on the companies that are more colorful and have uh, more of a sort of social aspiration behind them. But the companies that produce the silicon that undergirds all tech remain fairly conservative in their uh, in their outlook. And, and that's just a realistic description of how they function and who they are.
0: It's a really interesting take. Um, and as I said, you talk about the traitress a 8 the William, uh, the the a who left Shockley Semiconductor Company to found Intel. i got a couple of thoughts on that. Firstly, I, I've written something on this too. Um, William Shockley, who invented, essentially, I guess, the chip, who won the Nobel Prize for it, or at least was one of the inventors, was a, to, to put it kindly, was a very odd character. Uh, had some Nazi or neo-Nazi ideas. Uh, is there any... Cultural reading here, Chris. I mean, you, you've made the point. And you're certainly not the first or the last to associate Silicon Valley and the military-industrial complex that funded it and financed it and drove it. Um, can one can one um, make any political or or, or or cultural conclusions from the design, the idea of the chip that that that? Um, Uh, that Shockley and Noyce and the other founders of of, of, of the computer chip came up with in the 1940s and 50s?
1: Well, I think it's wrong to put Shockley at the center of the story, although Shockley spent his life trying to put himself at the center of the story. Mm. you know, The reality is that Shockley was one of three people to win the Nobel for inventing the transistor. And although the history that he wrote put himself at the center, in reality, the, the actual history was that He sort of theorized the idea, but his two lab partners invented it. Um, And he was very angry about that. And as a result, in some of the key uh, photos that were taken that then made the newspapers, he put himself in the center of those photos to make it look like he was the main.
0: Who were the other two? uh, Uh,
1: It uh, was Bardeen and Bratton.
0: Right. Um, Much more gentlemanly, much
1: more. That's right and yeah, so. John bardeen you know is was the only person to win two Nobels in physics so it, it's not as though they were uh, they were just following uh, Shockley's brilliance they were uh, you know very impressive in their own right so I, I think we should um, we shouldn't underplay Shockley's role but we shouldn't overplay it either uh, he was one of three people who invented the transistor and then he totally failed at uh, commercializing this technology and so as a result I I I think we ought to push back against stories that have him at the center because he was a player, but far from the most important one. And when it comes to his, his racial theories, and he was a believer in, in kind of racialized uh, stratification of intelligence and spent the latter couple of decades of his career um, pushing uh, racial theories of IQ and, and making himself um, really an outcast in, in the semiconductor industry were fairly unique um, uh, and indeed, actually, the story of the chip industry is not one um, a lot that fits the stories that Shockley would like to tell, because it was from the earliest stages, quite internationalized. Uh, there were a lot of uh, immigrants, especially immigrants from East Asia, Korea, uh, China, Japan, Taiwan, who played major roles from the earliest stages. Uh, and so I, I think it's wrong to have Shockley anywhere near the center of, of this narrative.
0: Very interesting. Well, certainly... Um... Uh, Gordon Moore um, was one of the key figures in this photo for people looking. One of the co-founders of Intel, as well as Bob Noyce, the, the f- well, two of the famous traitors A 2 reacted to um, Shockley to form Intel. I have a couple of thoughts or a couple of questions on Intel and Noyce and Moore. Firstly, Chris, um, if the chip is such a big deal, why are companies like Intel now? little more than footnotes in Silicon Valley. A- and secondly, what's your longer-term reading of Moore's Law? It can't go on forever. Does it depend now on quantum computing and revolutionizing the very nature, the architecture of, of how we think of computing?
1: on well, the first, on the companies themselves, I think Intel very clearly peaked in its importance Around 2000 or so, it it was the company that played the biggest role on the hardware side in the commercialization of the PC alongside Microsoft on the software side. And since then, Intel's been largely riding that wave as more and more PCs are sold and Intel sells a whole lot of PC chips, but it hasn't been at the core of innovation. If you look today, you'd point to companies like NVIDIA, which plays the key role in uh, designing chips for Uh, AI applications. And then there's a bunch of companies that most people have never heard of, but in fact are huge companies uh, and produce products we depend on. So for example, the largest technology company in Europe is a company called ASML, uh, the Dutch company that makes machines without which it's impossible to produce advanced chips. Now it's a machining company, uh, but without its machines, Apple wouldn't have chips in its iPhones and uh, we'd struggle to have AI and data centers. So it's crucial to the, the, the tech industry. And And similarly, in Asia, Taiwan's TSMC, the world's largest producer of logic chips, is uh, one of the biggest publicly traded companies in Asia, uh, vying with Chinese giants like Tencent or Alibaba for that title. And although most people have never heard of it either, uh, in fact, almost everyone relies on products that TSMC produces. So part of what's happened is that the industry has broken up into constituent pieces, and those pieces are complicated. Most people don't understand them, even though we're reliant on their products and the companies themselves are, are really quite giant uh, still, despite that they're not uh, household names. On the question of Moore's Law, I think it's clear we've got around a decade of runway to go um, with Moore's Law. And if you look at the companies that are producing chips themselves, they can explain to you how uh, they're planning over the next uh, five or 10 years to continue to shrink transistors and therefore put more transistors on each chip. After that point, nobody knows, although that's a constant in the history of the industry. It's always been the case that after 10 years, nobody knows how it's going to be done. And as a result of that, we've had multiple uh, waves of declarations that Moore's Law is over as- as early as the 1980s, there are people saying one decade to go, then Moore's law will end.
0: And yeah, well, in, in Silicon Valley, whenever anyone says Chris, "one decade more," they mean they
1: have no idea. One decade,
0: as I did, one decade in Silicon Valley is five centuries elsewhere. So
1: <laughs> I think that's right. I, I think it is true. At some point, it will become impossible to shrink transistors further, and we're already operating at transistors in the most advanced ships that are the size of a coronavirus are even smaller. So the ability to shrink further is at some point going to hit a limit, but I'm not that worried about the ability uh, for the industry to keep squeezing more computing power out of chips. There's a lot that can be done with uh, steps that don't involve shrinking transistors. So for example, getting power uh, onto chips in a more efficient way or optimizing the interconnect between different chips to let data move uh, more quickly. These are things that haven't been a focus area uh, for the past couple of decades because they hadn't needed to be a focus area. But now as shrinking transistors gets harder, there's a lot of other aspects of chip making that are getting more attention. So I think we should be skeptical when someone says Moore's law is about to end, even though that risk is certainly rising as transistors shrink and shrink ever closer to atomic size.
0: Chris, uh, Virginia, uh, Virginia Heffernan in the Times um, uh, ends her review of the book by saying trying to understand the digital world by studying only Facebook or Google is like trying to understand architecture by studying only frescoes. So what she's saying and what you're saying is we need to study chips. And maybe um, Tim Cook's been reading your book because, of course, now Apple is developing its own chips. Do you see a new, leaving aside the US-China war on chips, do you see a new chip war in Silicon Valley in which companies like Apple, Google, and Amazon, the real superpowers, not just in tech, but perhaps in the world, start to develop their own chip manufacturer from, and excusing these silly metaphors, from soup to nuts. So we have chips everywhere. Chips chips, as a, a beginner, a main course, and a dessert.
1: I think it's unlikely that any of those companies will manufacture their own chips. But what we're already seeing is that they're spending more and more money designing their own chips to produce hardware that's optimized to their use cases. So mm-hmm. one of the reasons that Apple's consumer products work so well is that most of the key chips inside of an iPhone or an iPad or a Apple computer is that uh, is a chip designed by Apple. And so they, they're able to make it fit exactly perfectly with what they I wanted to do. And there's a great Steve Jobs quote of, and he asked, what is software? And he came to the conclusion that software was something you didn't have time to put into hardware yet. And I think that Mm. that expresses a really fundamental truth. And, and if you're a company like Apple, that is selling units by the tens of millions, uh, and is now on your 14th iteration of the iPhone, you've got time to put a lot into hardware, and you get a lot of performance gain from doing so. Now, not every company is going to do that. Designing an advanced chip can cost a couple hundred million dollars, so it's it's not which isn't
0: a lot of money for these companies.
1: It's not a lot of money for a for an Apple or an Amazon. It's a lot of money for most companies, Um, Mm -hmm. and and uh, and that's why you're seeing more big tech companies doing so. So Google has chips that's designed in house. Amazon, Facebook, Microsoft are all designing chips. Yeah, I'm interested in
0: Facebook. uh, Zuckerberg's a reader too. How do you see it? If indeed, I mean, there's a lot of skepticism on the metaverse and and Zuckerberg's bet on the metaverse, on virtual reality. If this does indeed become the next big thing and we all start living in virtual reality, uh, how how could this change the chip business and the chip war?
1: I think the biggest impact is just going to be the demand for processing power and the demand for mm. memory is just going to keep growing dramatically. And if you think of just how much processing, how much memory mm. a metaverse requires in comparison to an hour of YouTube video, it's it's dramatically more. Um, and an hour of YouTube video requires a fair amount of silicon underneath it in a data center far away from your computer. But nevertheless, there's a lot of silicon making that YouTube video happen. Uh, and if if we all end up living in metaverses, we're going to all end up relying on a lot more silicon than we do today. Uh, so that's good news for all of the chip companies, if in fact Zuckerberg is right.
0: We began talking about uh, Taiwan um, in, in terms of Xi's speech. Your book um, talks about a man called Maurice Chang. I'd never heard of him, who looks astonishingly like Eric Schmidt of uh, of Google. I'm not sure if I'm the first or the last person to make that observation uh, but tell me a little bit about this guy, uh, Morris Chang, the the Baron of Chips from from Taiwan, who perhaps is the most powerful um, chip uh, entrepreneur, chip technologist in the world today.
1: I think Morris Chang is one of the most interesting entrepreneurs of the last century, even though most people haven't heard of him. He was born in mainland China uh, before World War II, fled the British-controlled Hong Kong when the Japanese first invaded. Then the communists took power, and he fled again to the U.S., where he enrolled at Harvard and was the only Chinese student in his class. Um, he left Harvard because he was uh, decided that a degree in the liberal arts was insufficiently practical, and so moved to MIT, studied physics and electrical engineering, and then got a job at Texas Instruments uh, in the 1950s, which was one of the kind of hot startups, if you will, of its uh, day. And he played a fundamental role in... Uh, teaching TI and learning while he was at TI how to manufacture chips efficiently. And so more than anyone else, he can claim to have uh, built up America's semiconductor industry from a, a small production run sort of experimental industry to something that was uh, producing thousands and thousands of chips for all types of devices. And he was uh, in what what's one of the greatest mistakes, I think, in American corporate history. He was passed over to be CEO uh, in the 1980s and so left TI and was approached by the government of Taiwan, where he'd only been a couple of times before on business trips because TI had some facilities on the island. And the government of Taiwan offered him a basically blank check to build up the island's industry. And he had a unique uh, realization at the time that the chip industry was about to undergo a major change. Before that point, most companies both designed and manufactured their own chips in-house, but he wanted to shake up the industry. Uh, disrupt the existing business model by only manufacturing chips, letting other companies design them, and then they'd come to him to get manufacturing. What that allowed was an enormous scaling of the uh, production process because he could produce for many different customers and get much more scale. And with that scale came a lot more learning about how to produce chips most efficiently and most cost-effectively. And so today, TSMC is the world's most advanced chipmaker it has the most advanced, the most uh, expansive capacity in producing processor chips, uh, and it produces ninety percent of the most advanced chips in the world today, exclusively on the island of Taiwan. And it's all th- thanks to Morris Chang, who uh, only retired a couple of years ago uh, and still is deeply involved in the company.
0: Well, I don't know whether it's Eric Schmidt pretending to be Morris Chang or Morris Chang pretending to be Eric Schmidt, but they to be the same <laughs> person, and uh, they're, they're they're both very smart. Um, Might this fact that Taiwan is so central in the chip business play into Xi's thinking on Taiwan itself? I mean, if there is war or if there is a Chinese, a successful Chinese invasion of Taiwan, that would give Taiwan a lot more power in the chip business. And if you're right, if the world's most critical technology is indeed chips, then Uh, it might indeed be an existential war, not like invading Ukraine, which doesn't seem to have any real value.
1: I think if there were actually a war over Taiwan, the Taiwanese chip industry would not survive. We're talking about the most precise equipment and the most complex factories, which are full of explosive gases, which are needed to make chips. So it's really implausible that any of the chip facilities would survive the war or that China would be able to acquire all the engineering talent, because many would probably try to flee. But I don't know whether Xi Jinping thinks about things in that way. And we have seen uh, a number of uh, analysts affiliated with the Chinese government in recent years, suggest that China should try to put more pressure on Taiwan or to take Taiwan um, because of its uh, chip making capabilities. So certainly, it is something that Chinese policymakers are aware about, American policymakers are aware about. And the, the Taiwanese themselves are keenly aware that their chip industry gives them uh, both a whole lot of importance, but also to some extent places them at at greater risk. How this plays out in China, I don't know. But I'm, I hear a lot of people who argue that the chip industry gives Taiwan a sort of silicon shield that defends it against Chinese attack, because if the Chinese were to attack and knock out the chip making facilities, the whole world would lack chips needed for smartphones and dishwashers and everything in between. And I I get more and more worried about that argument the more I hear about it, because the Russia-Ukraine war is a perfect example of how economic interdependence doesn't guarantee peace. And although China and Taiwan today are deeply economically and technologically interdependent, China needs Taiwan's ships. I don't think that's a perfect guarantee that China won't try to attack anyway, given the importance that Xi Jinping clearly places on asserting control over the island.
0: So here's the issue, Chris. Uh, Interdependence versus the world as a zero-sum game. Are you concerned that your new book, Chip War, The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology, as American policymakers figure out, and we've done many shows about this, whether China should be thought of as a partner or an enemy, that the kind of book that you have, Chip War, The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology, which presents everything in war terms in terms of zero sum might be used by the hawks i'm not sure if you're a hawk how would you define yourself in terms of u.s policy on china
1: well, i don't know about dove and hawk i mean i i think like well you people, know what
0: i mean you gotta, yeah. you gotta be one or the other or you're somewhere in between <laughs> i'm sure you'll position yourself somewhere in between
1: <laughs> i mean i i think i am a lot more worried than i would have been a couple of years ago about a worried about Taiwan, about a chinese attack on taiwan
0: but what about uh, China in broad terms? I mean, should, leaving aside the book, should American policymakers be treating China as a partner rather than enemy? Is Biden gone overboard in terms of this
1: quote unquote war on the economic front against China? Well, I don't think so. I, I, and I think one of the, the things that the book charts is the extent to which Chinese leaders over the past decade have conceptualized the tech competition in exactly those terms. And and I actually think that the U.S. Is, is late in catching up to the extent to which many governments around the world are, are looking at the technological race and above all the semiconductor race in militarized terms. And if you read Xi Jinping's speeches about core technologies, as he calls them, this is really militarized stuff. It's, it's seize the fortifications and assault uh, 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 assault the important positions. I mean, his, his language is, is language you use in a in a war, and if you look at the amount of funds China is putting towards its uh, efforts to domesticate uh, advanced technologies, it shows it's clearly a priority. So I, I don't think the Biden administration is is wrong to th- see this as a real challenge, and I think they're correct in saying that the future of computing power and the ability to produce computing power, which means the ability to produce chips, is absolutely going to shape the military balance going forward.
0: We had the same on Japan. You, you, your book deals with Sony and, and their understanding of the value of chips. But Japan now is insignificant, either as a, certainly as a military, but even as, a, as an economic power. So uh, these things are always cyclical. There's always some rising power, and, and and the dominant power is always fearful of
1: it. I think that's right. I, I think the question is how much, how confident are you that? China will decline just like Japan declined and how? what's the cost of being wrong? And I guess I'm less confident that China is going to end up where Japan ended up. Maybe it will, um, but I'm not sure. And I think the cost of being wrong in that judgment is quite substantial. So I, I, I'm with the Biden administration when they say there, is, there has been a dramatic decline in America's relative military position in Asia. China's gotten much stronger, uh, especially around the Taiwan Straits. Uh, and when we think a decade into the future, China is going to be building ships and planes far more rapidly than we are. And so, the only real hope of solidifying the U.S. military position is to produce better uh, weaponry. And and the best way to do that is to produce smarter weaponry. And that's that's exactly what the strategy aims to do. That, that the Pentagon and has put out, and the Biden administration uh, is working on. You know, maybe it will be unnecessary because China will implode, or China's growth will slow, or Xi Jinping will have a heart attack next year, that's possible. Um, But that doesn't seem like the wisest bet to make right now, Uh, even though I'm cognizant of all of China's internal weaknesses and all the challenges they face as they pursue uh, greater power on the world stage.
0: Chris, finally, uh, we did a show thinking about the future, not 10 years, but 50 years ahead with Michael Bess, a historian at Vanderbilt talking about the existential crises facing humanity, climate, pandemic, AI, and nukes, all bound up, I think, in your thesis of chips. He suggests that ultimately the world needs to come together. Uh, what about that thesis and theme in your book and your worldview is as these existential crises grow, maybe there'll be in some sort of nuclear catastrophe or mistake in Ukraine, certainly the... the, the um, pandemic we're at the beginning of the the narrative of pandemics in the 21st century AI with with your chips are proving to be more and more ubiquitous is there a possibility that rather than fighting against China or controlling the world's economy given that there is a a broader existential crisis of humanity Americans should be working with China
1: well, I think it depends in, on in the long t- term, in
0: the very long yeah. term, we're talking fifty years' time when Moore's Law will have certainly ended.
1: <laughs> well I don't think anyone would disagree with the desire to have a more cooperative international landscape in fifty years' time. I guess the question is how do you get there? Um, and should you bet on it being more cooperative, or should you hedge your bets and prepare for it to be less cooperative? And I think, you know, history suggests that there's plenty of scope for cooperation and collaboration, even amid uh, competition. But I think it also suggests that just hoping for cooperation puts you in a bad position if, in fact, you end up with a competitive landscape. And, and today, it's hard to look at the world and not perceive a whole lot of competition happening, um, competition with pretty high stakes, I would say. Uh, and so to just pretend that it's not happening or to hope that you can hope it away doesn't seem like a wise strategy.
0: All uh, right, there you have it from Chris Miller. Chip War: the fright for the world's most critical technology. I'm not I'm not an ornithologist. An orth- I'm not an expert on birds, Chris. But if there is a bird between a hawk and a dove, it's you. Um, maybe a pigeon. Uh, congratulations on the new books. Taking off, you're one of America's leading young historians and political thinkers. I think we're going to hear, be hearing a lot more of you in the future. It's much deserved.
1: Um, what else are you reading these days, Chris? Well, I'm in the middle of a new book by uh, a political scientist named Joseph Torregian on Chinese and Russian leadership struggles throughout history. He's the he's the expert on uh, on the on the specifics of politics in both China and Russia. Has done extraordinary historical research and has got, I think, the best book on uh, mm. coups and palace intrigue in both China and Russia. And so when I look at the world today and I wonder what's happening inside the Kremlin and also What's happening in Jiangnan High? There's no better historical take than this one. Excellent.